Let's make our way back to the Old Testament. I'll give you just a second to find it, the book of Micah, okay? Uh, It's not uh, Malachi, but it's Micah. We're going to look at the first chapter today uh, in its entirety uh, in a message that uh, I have entitled, Capital Cities, uh, Capital Punishment. Capital Cities, everybody there? Come on, somebody. You guys with me today? Did you, I mean, are you like thinking too much already about Halloween later? I mean, what's going on? Are you here? We're here? Okay, okay. Well, then let's, uh, let's take our hearts to the Lord. Uh, Father, we just thank you again just for your faithfulness, uh, Lord, to meet with us, to minister to us. And we just offer this time now to you. And we pray, God, that you would speak as only you can, God. We, we are, are, are ready and waiting and listening. And so we pray, God, that you would not only challenge us as always, Lord, that, but that you would change us and that we'd be made more like Jesus as we spend time with you, for it's in his name that we pray. And everybody say, amen. amen. So Micah, you're there? His message, he has a message, don't misunderstand me, it's for all of humanity, though his, his, uh, the specific scope will narrow quickly. Uh, he speaks primarily, obviously, to Israel and Judah. And so m- much of the interpretation will belong to Israel and Judah specifically, but I trust that as it pertains to application, there will be plenty found for you and me personally. Now, why do we speak of, of uh, Israel and Judah? Well, it's because after the death of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two parts, a northern and a southern kingdom. And the ten northern tribes formed the territory of Israel, and the two southern tribes, which were Judah and Benjamin, uh, formed the territory of Judah. And Micah is rather unique in that though God would send prophets to warn and serve in the northern kingdom, and he would send prophets to warn and serve in the southern kingdom, Micah is the only prophet who would minister to both. Okay, so with that, let's take and turn our attention right here in the very first verse where we read the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now, I want to stop right here because there are a number of things that the prophet establishes for us right off the bat. And so if you're a note taker or maybe a margin etcher, we have here what, we we learn the what we have, Uh, we learn who is giving it, and we learn when it's being given. And guys, it's super important that we understand what we have from the very start. I would encourage you to underline it. The very first thing that Micah wants to establish for us is that what we're being given here is the word of the Lord. Okay, And I can't stress strongly enough that we understand what that means. Micah is saying, look, what I am bringing to you is not the opinion of the prophet or the personal persuasion of the pastor. What we have before us, ladies and gentlemen, is the inerrant, infallible, Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God. Amen? And the reason that I stop to emphasize that is because when we're subjecting ourselves to Scripture... When we find ourselves under the waterfall of the Word of God, it necessarily, you understand, don't you? It necessarily anticipates an appropriate course of action, okay? Uh, Anything other than that, anything outside of an appropriate course of action to the Word of God, that is, when we hear God's Word, meaning we hear with understanding, right? Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. But then we don't respond in an appropriate course of action. That's called top ten answers on the board, survey says. Anyone want to give it a guess? Come on. Disobedience, which in fact is sin. Ding, 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 ding. Right? Because we know what God has said. We understand the good course of action that he would have us take. We simply choose not to do it. And what does the Bible say about that? 
Well, it's in James chapter 4. It says, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And guys, when we choose, we know what's good, we choose not to do it, that is, we decide we're going to sin, it necessarily brings about certain disastrous ramifications in our lives. Jesus said that like this. He said, But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell. And notice it wasn't a minor issue. He says, great was its fall. But I've discovered, ladies and gentlemen, that many times we'll listen to God's word and we'll treat it more like a matter of opinion. And one with which, by the way, we many times don't agree. And truth be told, to state the obvious, guys, you don't have to agree with me, right? I mean, your opinion is as good, perhaps even better uh, than mine. But when we're talking about the word of the Lord, it's not opinion, it's truth, It's directive, right, meaning it directs us. It may be corrective, meaning it corrects us. And when we don't give it any more credence or authority than anything else that we read or listen to, listen, there's a problem, okay? We've drawn attention before to the fact that, you know, we can't approach God's word like a buffet of sorts. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, uh, you know, I'll take love. Um, I'll take lots of mercy. Grace looks good. You know, forgiveness and favor. Think I'll pass on the righteousness. Let's go easy on the holiness. Not feeling the obedience, but pile on the blessings. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't work like that. We're to be doers of the word. And uh, as hearers, uh, you know, we're not, I should say we're to be hearers of the word. And as hearers, then we are held accountable to be doers. So that when the Bible says, you know, do not be drunk with wine, but then I proceed to get lit, you know. Or the Bible says, let not filthy language proceed from your mouth, but I continue to cuss or use profanity as it seems the situation justifiable, at least to me, in my mind. Or the Bible says, speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what, notice, every joint supplies according to the effective working by which, notice, every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. I would hope you would want to see the body of Christ growing and healthy and, and full of life, and, and but then we choose not to encourage, we choose not to edify we choose not to well the words are do our share so as to bless the body in any way i mean we're hearers but come on man are we are we doers think it through are we truly giving way to what we read as the word of the lord i mean marinate in that Kind of meditate on that for just a minute. How high do I truly ascribe? Meaning, what kind of authority will I allow in me, you see, when it comes to the word of the Lord? Am I truly responding appropriately to the way it would direct or correct me? Think about that. And I point that out, you guys, because we err many times on both the negative and the positive, don't we? Meaning there are sins of commission and there are sins of omission, right? What does that mean? It means not only oftentimes do we do the things that God's word would tell us not to do, which would be a sin of commission. I'm committing something. I'm actively participating in something. 
But then simultaneously, it's not uncommon at all, is it? If we're to be honest, you see, that we don't do what God's Word says we should do. And that would be a sin of omission. I'm omitting this part from my life. Now, I'm so grateful. I'm so glad. I'm sure I can get an amen here. I'm just going to go ahead and throw it out. Feel free to offer that back. That we serve. I'm so glad we serve a merciful God. <laughs> you know, a gracious God. But let's not use grace as a cloak or a covering for vice or for sin uh, to justify disobedience in our lives. But rather that we would humble ourselves, confess our sin, and seek the Lord to give us hearts and lives of obedience to Him. Lives that bring honor and glory to Him, yeah? So, that's the what that we're being given. Guys, it's the word of the Lord. As for who it is that's giving it, we read here it's Micah of Moresheth. Now, Moresheth would be where Micah, you know, hailing from Moresheth, the prophet, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, this is where he lived, which means that he lived in the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, this would be about 25-ish miles kind of southwest of Jerusalem. But what that tells us, how many of you prior to reading the book of Micah had ever heard of the, the area, the territory, the town called Morasheth? Yeah, that's like a no hands in the building kind of response, isn't it? And, and the reason I'm pointing that out is because it tells us that he wasn't from some big important city, you know, storming onto the scene from the influential who's who of society. But rather, he lived on the borderlands between Judah and the Philistines. He was, he was right there. He lived in a little town out in the country and seems to appear out of nowhere, really from the common people. Not the who's who, but Micah comes from the city of who's he, okay? Um, and so... We really don't know too much of anything about him. We don't know his pedigree. We don't know anything about his ancestry. Evidently, he does not consider that to be important or essential information. What's important to him is that God has entrusted to him his word, and he has a responsibility to make that known to the people. Are you following me? That's the important thing. But what I love about this is the fact that it's another reminder to us that you don't have to be somebody, you don't have to be someone for God to use your life. Now, that's not to say that God can't or that God won't ever, you know, at times take hold of a high-profile individual and just use them in a tremendous way. And we thank God, you know, regardless of who or how He wants to use people. But, you know... Most commonly, God will take the average or least likely candidate and use them for his glory. Why? So that people won't gravitate toward that mentality of, oh, well, you know, it makes real sense that people would respond to this person. I mean, after all, I mean, look who they are, you know, that kind of a thing. But he wants, God wants people to come to the conclusion of, hey, man, to God be the glory, great things he has done. I mean, we know this isn't that guy. You know what I'm saying? This is something God is doing. And so he grabs kind of the, dare I say, kind of the country bumpkin. He grabs the man from Morasheth, Micah, and he puts him into play. Now, as for when, so we have the what. It's the word of the Lord. We have the who, it's Micah from Moresheth. As for the when, it's in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, which places Micah on the scene. If you're uh, interested in such kind of fun facts, uh, he is contemporary with Isaiah. He is contemporary with Hosea. And he's ministering somewhere in the years between 739 B.C. and 686 B.C. After Jotham began his reign, but before the end of Hezekiah's reign. 
Now, Hezekiah, those of you who know much about your uh, ancient kings of Judah, uh, you will know that Hezekiah was a, a kind of a noted, he was a great reformer. A lot of changes took place under him. So it's probably safe to assume that the sin Micah confronts in his message is prior to the reforms of Hezekiah. It seems that Hezekiah responded to the message and reformed, okay? And we note that the sins that he confronts specifically, still in verse 1, concern Samaria and Jerusalem, which were the capital cities of Israel, okay? The territory, remember the northern ten tribes? Their, their capital became Samaria. And in the southern two tribes... Their capital remained Jerusalem, okay? And he, Micah, would actually be the last prophet, the final prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel before it fell to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Okay, so this is like God's final message, if you will, uh, to those in the north. Now look at verse 2. He writes, hear all you peoples, listen, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord, from his holy temple. So look, guys, God has a word, right? We already see who it concerns. He has a word for Samaria and Jerusalem. Israel and Judah. And of course, you know, when he, when he says Samaria and Jerusalem, it includes their respective representative territories. That's why you can say Israel and, and Judah, and he'll bring that up. But notice he wants it to be heard, duly noted, and appropriately responded to by all of humanity. Did you see that? He says, hear all you peoples. He says, listen, O earth and all that is in it. And guys, to kind of build upon what we developed in verse 1 regarding the appropriate response to uh, the word of the Lord, we see God calling attention to the imperative need for everyone to pay attention, resulting in a right response to all that he's about to say and do. He says, hey, everybody Listen up, okay? Because the principles that he's establishing or that he's highlighting here directly affect you and me. Every individual, he says, upon the face of the earth, okay? So here's the, here's the idea, you guys. Here's the principle in play. When God issues a warning, okay, that is, when he draws attention to a certain course of action that results in a certain ramification. Are you following me? So if you do this, this will be the result. Okay? So when God issues a warning and he says this course of action will result in this ramification, he's not bluffing. You understand that? God does not bluff. Um, he does not ignore, and he does not condone nor approve of sin, much less willful rebellion. Ladies and gentlemen, family, we serve a holy and righteous God, okay? And as such, he must. There's like no ifs, ands, or buts. If he's to be holy, if he's to be righteous, he must deal with, or uh, how you say, um, take care of sin. But it's a common problem that we as people often repeat. That is, we confuse the patience of God for a lack of awareness. Or even worse, perhaps, the approval of God. You know, that God's either not aware or that maybe he even approves, that he's okay with, that he'll turn a blind eye to, that he won't necessarily make a big deal of, 
Are you following me? In other words, look, I know that God has said that homosexuality or, um, you know, perhaps uh, some kind of immorality is sin, uh, you know, that drunkenness is, uh, you know, and depravity is sin, you know, but I've been partying regularly. I've engaged in all kinds of immoral activity and God hasn't done anything about it. And so either he doesn't notice it Perhaps he's turned a blind eye to it. He doesn't care about it. Or maybe he's okay with it. Meanwhile, people are storing up judgment for themselves. God gives us in his grace a season to repent. But people prefer to perceive God's absence of activity as a sign, again, that perhaps he approves or is okay or turned a blind eye to or isn't paying attention, okay? And it's not that they don't know what God has said. It's that they think that they're the exception or somehow God understands in their case. Yet they're filling up the wine cup of the wrath of God with unrepentant iniquity. And when it's filled to the brim, the Bible speaks of the cup of the wrath that God holds in his hand. And when it fills to the brim with that unrepentance, with that sin or that transgression, that God will press it to the lips of that person or those people and force them to drink it down to the dregs in his judgment. Do you understand that? So when it comes to the word of the Lord, when we're called upon to hear and to listen, let's not be deceived. God is warning us he's wanting to warn us why because he desires to spare us he wants us to hear him respond appropriately to him but guys his righteousness his holiness demands justice are you following me okay verse three he says for behold the lord is coming out of his place he will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. You see this avalanche kind of a thing. All of this is for the transgression of Jacob, for the sins of the house of Israel. And what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Verses 3 through 5, we're seeing here, again, if you're a margin etcher, you want to take a note, you're seeing the results of the coming judgment, you're seeing the reason for the coming judgment, and then when we get to verses 6 and 7, we will see the reality of said judgment or the certainty of coming judgment. Now, back in verse 3, Micah perceives, you know, he, this is something that he's seeing, and he perceives with this vivid imagery the Lord coming out of his place descending from heaven to the earth to interfere in the affairs of man and he's coming with judgment and he sees this great cataclysmic kind of upheaval things like we read of in Revelation chapters 6 through 18 and 19 Mountains melting like wax from the heat of a fire, valleys splitting as God storms through the earth in judgment. The sins of Israel and Judah have, we might say, awakened him to action, have set him in motion against them. And the judgment that's to come upon Israel and Judah is merely, here's the thing, guys, let's not, re, re, uh, let's recall to mind, they're merely a foreshadow of what will be fulfilled in God's coming judgment upon all the earth, okay? He will tread on the high places. What is that? Those places where people have worshiped other gods, or we might understand it as placed priorities in their lives higher than him. 
That's the high place in your heart. Whatever the priority is that's in place higher than him. He says, every high place will be thrown down and trampled beneath him. All of this, notice, for the transgression of Jacob, for the sins of the house of Israel. So not only has Israel sinned against God, meaning they've missed the mark. That's what sin means, right? The old archery term, but you miss. You've sinned. You've missed the mark. You tried to hit it. You missed it. Not only have they sinned uh, and, and fallen short of the holy standards of God, we read that they've transgressed meaning they willfully, knowingly rebelled against him. I read the sign. I saw it on your property. It said no hunting. It said no trespassing. I just chose to ignore it, walk on, and try and kill a deer anyway. You see, I've transgressed. I've trespassed. I've willfully, knowingly gone against the word and the will of the one who owns the property. Does that make sense? Okay. But what I want you to realize, ladies and gentlemen, I mean is that for all of this coming judgment, and, and, and it's pretty uh, overwhelming, did you notice what's not mentioned? The sins of the ungodly. They're not even brought into the picture. They're, they don't even come onto the radar. What's about to happen is the result of the sins of the people of God. Now, to me, this is very telling because we tend to think Listen, God, you know, I know that your people were really blowing it. I mean, we won't make excuses for them. We won't in any way try to justify them. But what about Assyria? I mean, what about Babylon? What about Egypt or, or, or the Philistines, you see? All these ungodly nations that are surrounding them, surely they're much worse. I mean, shouldn't you consider them first? God says no. No, listen, when it comes time to settle accounts, listen, God says, I'm going to start with my own house first. And we see the principle here, but Peter puts it plainly where he says, for time, the time has come for judgment notice to begin at the house of God. Uh, however, you know, we do well uh, to remember the last half of the verse, don't we? He, he goes on to say, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? I mean, if God will take whatever measure necessary to set his own house in order, you know, uh, of those who are his then what will be the end of the ungodly? Think about that. Those who have rejected him spitefully, rebelled against him intentionally, without any regard, you see. Now, look at this. In verse 6, he says, What is the transgression of Jacob or Israel? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Now, ladies and gentlemen, we can speak of the topography, and you know that Jerusalem, you know, these are high, like, topographically speaking. You, you go up, no matter which direction you're coming from, north, south, east, west, when you go to Jerusalem, you're always going up, okay? It's on a hill. It's, it's, it's on a high place. It's mountainous, if you will. Uh, but... Ultimately, what's being said here is that the root of idolatry, that is this spiritual adultery in these nations, was set, hear me now, in their capital cities. Now, not necessarily that it started there, but that its influence in the nation permeated most readily from there. Does that make sense? Here's the point. The city in which is the seat of government has tremendous influence upon its nation. 
and in some cases, the entire world. Okay? Corruption in leadership leads to corruption in the land. Something that our leaders in Washington, D.C. would do well to take note of. Okay? This would be a great read for our national leaders. Now, you don't want to get me going, okay? Not on that. My family's over here already getting embarrassed that I might say something. But uh, here's the thing. As goes D.C., so goes the nation. And listen to me. Its effect will ripple across the world, okay? Prayer breakfast by morning, partying by night, corruption, hypocrisy in the seat of power. Ladies and gentlemen, God takes notice and holds a nation to account. Government, you understand this, right? Government exists to preserve the common good of the people, not to feed upon and enrich themselves off the people. Now, it doesn't excuse the sins of the people, all right? But he's pointing to the root of the problem. So God is speaking to the governing bodies, those who set the standards and uphold the example for the nation, okay? But let's not forget verse 2. God's dealings with his people are a witness and a warning to all nations. Again, if God so deals with his people, how then will he handle those who are far more guilty? Now, of course, as we get toward the end of the book, uh, you know, God will speak of restoration. He'll speak of reconciliation, another testimony of the grace that awaits those who will repent of their sin, who will turn to him. But again, the reason I remind you of verse 2 is because I want you to glean an application, not just for, uh, you know, our country generally, which, you know, God help us, but for your life and my life personally. You know, in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul reminds us why, the, you know, like why did God record all of these things? Why did he uh, uh, unveil all of the ungodliness, all of the sins, all the transgressions, and the way he dealt with and, 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 and you know, uh, took care of the sins of the people and all of this? Guys, it wasn't so that we could scoff at how horrible they were. Oh, my goodness, I can't believe Israel would do that. I mean, there they were. They were serving God, and they did it. How could they possibly or somehow make ourselves feel better about who we are? But the reason it's recorded is so that we might learn from them and not repeat or follow after the same kind of errors. Do you understand that? It's 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. Now all these things happened to them. He's speaking of the patriarchs, the fathers, and the people of ancient Israel as examples. And they were written, notice, for our... So we feel better about ourselves? You know, so we could look at them and go, wow, they really blew it. Glad I didn't know. Our exhortation, our admonition, our application upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Guys, as for you and me, our idolatry may not include little trinkets of ivory or silver, you know, gold, wood, or stone, but we still often live for the manufacturing of our own hands, don't we? Cars, clothing, money, homes. We are a materialistic people. Be careful. What you serve and sacrifice for is the object of your worship. I think a timely word for our generation is found in Luke's gospel. Jesus said, take heed and beware of covetousness, which is idolatry, by the way. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Micah is warning that the day will come when God will destroy the idols of the people. He will beat them to pieces and burn them with fire. 
You know, Peter told us that the earth will melt with a fervent heat. All these materialistic things that we put such esteem and value on, it's all going to burn. God will destroy every high place, you see. Now, look at verse 6. He says, Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay desolate, for she gathered it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of a harlot." Now, Micah would actually see this fulfilled, as I told you earlier, when Assyria conquered Israel in 722 B.C. And to this day, you can Google it if you want, or if you happen to ever be in the neighborhood, uh, you can still see the ruins of Samaria, heaps of ruins in a field. And God brought his judgment upon the northern kingdom first. Uh, you know, when you study their history, you discover that, you know, Judah had a few good kings along the way who would reform and repent and try to lead the people uh, back to the Lord. Uh, but Israel, in all their years after the, um, the division of the nation, they never had so much as one single good king. It was just wicked king after wicked king. Uh, every king that ruled in the north was wicked and ungodly. But here we see the idea of idolatry and spiritual adultery being intertwined. Did you see it there? God chose Israel to be his own. But in going after other gods, as far as God's concerned, they're being unfaithful to him. They're cheating on him, as it were. And it's not to say that there was not literal harlotry happening. There certainly was. But the money that they spent on idols would be both spiritually and um, politically worthless to them. It, they wouldn't help them in the day of trouble. The Assyrians would break them in pieces, melt them down, and use them to pursue their own acts of sin. That's what he's saying. The point here, guys, is that those material things that we serve, those things in which we seek satisfaction won't save us in the day of trouble. You understand that? That's what he's saying. Now, look at verse 8. Therefore, I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. ostriches. For her wounds are incurable. For it has come to Judah... It has come to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. So what he's letting you know here is that when the Assyrians attack the northern kingdom of Israel, they won't stop there. They're going to continue to advance their attack all the way, keep going further and further south into the territory of Judah. They would conquer several territories of Judah. They would go right up to the gate of Jerusalem. They wouldn't conquer Jerusalem. God would send an angel and kill 185,000 or so of them in one night. Uh, but be that as it may, uh, God would protect. Jerusalem. But what I want you to notice in, in verse uh, 8 is, is the lament of the prophet. How Micah, you know, listen, what is your response when you think about the judgment of God? Micah was not dispassionate. Uh, he wasn't like, and you want a dispassionate prophet, who comes to your mind? Jonah, right? I mean, if there was ever a dispassionate prophet, you're looking at Jonah. Ah, I've come to Nineveh, and I didn't even want to go there in the first place. I preferred that they just burn. But since, you know, you get all this trouble, put me in a boat, throw me over the boat, put me in a big fish, and spit me up on the beach, I guess I'll go. And he just goes through the city, 40 days, and judgment's coming. And that's it. And he goes away. And then he goes out, and he sits down, has this plant that he's sitting under, and he's just waiting to watch. He's like, it's going to be good. And it's kind of... You know, but lo and behold, they repent. God 
relents. So Jonah laments then. Right? He was so disappointed that they repented and that God relented. Micah wept and wailed over the judgment of God upon the people. Like Jeremiah, who commonly referred to as the weeping prophet. Like Jesus, who sat there on the Mount of Olives looking over Jerusalem, and he began to break down and weep over the judgment that was going to befall them and how not even one stone would be left, how they would be trampled and their children would be dashed to pieces. And he said, if you'd only known this, even this, your day, right? There was an agony that he experienced in announcing the judgment of God upon the nation. He refused to keep two degrees of separation And in many ways, his heart reflected the heart of God to the people, for the people. Listen, it's true, ladies and gentlemen, that holiness, the holiness of God, the righteousness of God demands justice. But don't confuse that in such a way as to think that God has pleasure in executing said justice or judgment. God's vengeance is not vindictive. Does that make sense? However, there comes a point whereby God cannot simply sit idly by and allow a person or a people to continue down a particular path. God has said, my spirit shall not strive or argue or plead with man forever. God will convict a person. He will strive with said person. He will plead with them to turn from their wicked ways, their fleshly appetites, their sin. He sent them prophet after prophet. But ladies and gentlemen, there comes a time, there is a line whereby God says, and I don't know when this time is, my suspicion is that it's different for every person and on a national level, who knows, perhaps we're already there. But God says, I'm finished striving with you, and there is nothing left but judgment to fall upon you. People simply refuse to respond to the word of God. And so we circle all the way back to our very first verse and our very first application, our very first observation, the word of the Lord And it demands, it necessarily anticipates an appropriate response, a certain course of action. Are you following me? The Proverbs put it this way, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck, that is, stiffens up, postures up, refuses to be moved, will suddenly be destroyed, and that without Remedy, or as Micah puts it here, her wounds are incurable. That's it. The time, the line has been crossed. Now, let's read verse 10 through the end of the chapter here. He says, Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Beth Afra. Roll your, or weep not at all. And then he says, in Beth Afra, roll yourself in the dust. Pass by in naked shame, you inhabitants of Shafir. The inhabitants of, how do you say, Zanan or Zeanan does not go out. Beth Ezel mourns. Its place to stand is taken away from you. 
For the inhabitants of Maroth pined for good, but disaster came down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. O inhabitant of Lachish, harness the chariot to the swift steeds. She was the beginning notice of sin to the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in you. In verse 14, therefore you shall give presents to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Achzeb shall be a lie to the kings of Israel. I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitant of uh, Marashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourself bald and cut off your hair because of your precious children. Enlarge your baldness like an eagle. For they shall go from you into captivity. So Micah's lament. And guys, we don't really see it in the English translation, but he's using a play on words to communicate to these cities. He's communicating a message to these cities who are coming under judgment. But the first thing he says is, tell it not in Gath. Now he's actually referring back to a song that David wrote when Saul, King Saul, was killed. And, uh, you know, tell it not in Gath. Now, Gath was, remember, Moresheth, Gath, Gath was a Philistine city, an enemy of Israel. Fun fact, who hailed from Gath? Who was their champion? Go very good students of the Bible. Goliath. And so he's essentially saying, don't spread this around to the enemies of Israel. He can't stand the idea of God's enemies rejoicing over the judgment of his people. You know, people like to spread it around, don't they, when a pastor or a church leader falls or something. Micah says, hey, don't do that. You know, I mean, why should the pain of another bring pleasure to you? We're to weep with those who weep. And bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And he brings up Beth uh, Afra. Now, the, the name Beth Afra means uh, house of dust. And so he says, house of dust, roll yourself in the dust. You see that? That's what he's saying. He's saying, lament and repent. Shafir, or beautiful, he says, pass by in naked shame. You will be carried away in a manner that is contrary to what your name suggests. You will be paraded in naked shame. Now, Zainan or Zayanan means going out. He's saying, you're not going to be going anywhere. You're going to be holed up behind your walls in fear. Marath means bitterness. He says, you will writhe in pain, waiting for relief. You're pining for good, but only disaster will come to them. Now, Lachish was known for its strength, he says. That's why he talks about the chariots and harnessing, but he's saying, look, the only thing you're going to harness your horses for will be to flee. And evidently, the trickle-down of Israel, as you read there, I believe it's verse 13, yeah, um, the trickle-down of Israel's influence of idolatry in Judah began in Lachish. He says, for the, he says here, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you, and you were the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. So, and by the way, Karen, we're finishing here if you want to come up. But then on and on he goes. He speaks of, uh, you know, uh, Akzib there in verse 14. Now that means lie, as in L-I-E, as in not the truth. Uh, and he says, you're a deceit to Israel. In other words, the city's going to fall so fast, it's like a deception. It's not a defense. Don't count on it to defend you. It's a lie. It's going to fall fast. Guys, the point is plain. Judgment is coming. The bigger question is how would they respond to the word of the Lord? And the same is true for you, and the same is true for me. God is faithful, isn't he? He's faithful to warn us of coming judgment. And he tells us how to be spared his judgment through turning from our sin, 
trusting in Jesus Christ. But it's imperative that we listen to him, that we respond appropriately to him. It's that appropriate course of action that's anticipated by the directive or corrective exhortation of his word. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Guys, hearing the word is one thing. Don't deceive yourself into believing that hearing it is likened to doing it. Yeah, I've heard it. Yeah, I, I get it. So many times we think, well, because I've heard it, I must, now I got it. But the question is, did anything change in your life as a result of it? So don't confuse hearing with doing. And let's not be hearers only of the word, deceiving ourselves. But let's be doers of the word of God, amen? Amen, let's bow our hearts. Father, I pray that as we look into Micah's message over the next few weeks or so, God, that we would hear, that we would listen, and that we would give heed to your word, your direction, your correction in our lives. And so, ladies and gentlemen, while we're here and, and our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, and I don't, I, you know, I don't know everybody here. I, but the message is, judgment is coming. Grace is available. Don't put off for another day what God is calling you to do today whether it's turning to him for the very first time, I mean, you know, truly not just going to church, jumping through a hoop, whatever, but believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, turning to him, or maybe returning to him. I just want to encourage you to give God the whole of your heart today. Today.